0: Whenever I'm asked to come and work with young people, I try to not only teach them the art of theater, but also something about citizenship.
1: That's theater director, playwright, and video artist Ping Zhang talking about his recent work, Kaleidoscope, Adventures in Pre- and Post-Racial America. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. For over 45 years, Ping Zhang has created innovative works of theater and art that explore the intersection of race, history, culture, and technology. And that intersection is exactly where we can find his recent work, Kaleidoscope, Adventures in Pre- and Post-Racial America, which was co-written and co-directed with Ping's longtime collaborator, Talvin Wilkes. Kaleidoscope is a visionary play that moves back and forth through time, connecting the dots between America's violent racial history and current social unrest, touching on different historic moments from a 1774 slave petition to Fannie Lou Hamer's dramatic 1964 testimony about the racist violence she endured in Mississippi when she tried to register to vote to a James Baldwin speech in London which are interspersed with fictional scenes from the Great Depression and the antebellum South. And because Ping Zhang always wants us to see with fresh eyes, the action of the play takes place in a laboratory-like setting from the viewpoint of an extraterrestrial. The result is a provocative, timely, and visually arresting piece of theater. Last month, Kaleidoscope had its world premiere at the Clarice Smith Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Maryland with a remarkable cast composed entirely of students. I spoke with Ping a few days after Kaleidoscope's opening and asked him for a little more background about the play.
0: Well, when the Trayvon Martin killing happened, I felt that I wanted to do something around that issue. And I had, a couple of years before, worked on a theater work about the American Civil War, which I aborted, And between Trayvon and the Civil War, I thought perhaps I should do a show that gives some kind of essentialized history of black and white race in the United States. And so what started as a work that was going to be around Trayvon Martin turned into a work that was looking at connecting black and white race history through time. So... The work turned into a work that moved back and forth in time, a kind of time machine to give a kind of bird's eye view of the uh, black and white race issue.
1: Now, you examine this legacy of black and white relations in the United States from the point of view of an alien. Yes. An extraterrestrial. Right. Why that perspective?
0: Well, I don't know if you're aware of the series of articles that Nicholas Christophe has been writing about race in America, you know, this past year. But reading some of the commentary coming in, you know, some of the people who wrote in saying, oh, you know, they should get over it. They've got a black president. We're moving into a new time and era, shows a kind of lack of historic consciousness of the reality of being black in America. And so... I see that it's difficult to talk about race in America because some people, uh, many people in this country think, oh, we've talked this to death and we don't want to talk about it anymore. So I felt that taking a point of view that was unusual would bring a, a possible fresh point of view to the work. So taking an extraterrestrial point of view makes it more objective and more interesting.
1: Kaleidoscope is a mixture of documented historical
0: moments and fictional scenes. That's correct. Explain that approach. I thought that it gives the show more variety, keeps the audience on their toes as to what's going to come next. I kind of loosely thought of the show as being a series of cliffhangers from Mm. scene to scene. In the same sense, as you might say, like the Flash Gordon series in the 1930s, I wanted each scene to end inconclusive but leaving you hanging so that you, you would be curious enough to keep moving forward with us. Another strategy that I used in the show, as you notice, was that I did cross-gender casting and I also I had ask you yes. um, African-Americans playing whites. You know, All of these are to make the audience look at the situation in a different way than they've done before. It's is a strategy to make them look at this this history in a fresh way.
1: And before we get to what happens on the stage, I really would like you to describe the set because that is hand in glove with the whole
0: uh, notion of a, this viewpoint being mm-hmm. that of an extraterrestrial. As I said, the show moves back and forth in historical time and in the history of black and white race history, but nothing in the production is period in the traditional sense, meaning one of the scenes takes place pre-American Revolutionary War. No one's wearing period costume. And when oh. we're in the Civil War, no one's wearing period costume. And the set is not a realistic set. I always thought of it as a, in a spaceship and yeah. part of the uh, a kind of laboratory in which you could say, possibly, it's a hologram of earthly events possibly it's a restaging by the aliens who might look like human beings to examine this history so this the set is kind of a very minimalist modernist looking cool set it's a pretty spectacular set considering that it is a minimalist set yes because of the very elaborate media that we use in the show which has you know media that is in motion during the show it's a great set perfect Thank you. for that venue yeah, I will let the set designer know who's a grad student at uh, the University of Maryland. All the designers, with the exception of the sound designer, were grad students, and they did an amazing job. They this most is certainly College did. College Park, yeah.
1: This is a work you created with a longtime collaborator of yours, Talvin Wilkes. That's correct. How did you two decide which moments you would put on the stage. And I'm talking about not the fictional ones, but the documented ones, because this is, you know, such a wide range. You
0: start before the Revolutionary War.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, one of the things that we knew was that because the subject is such an epic subject, that we couldn't possibly do it as a linear work, meaning just going from the beginning of American history all the way up to the present, it was quite impossible to do in an evening. And so I think my approach to it was to do it with a more poetic and essentialized syntax. That's why I wanted to jump from place to place, from time to time, and make the audience connect the dots in, in the history. I know that uh, Talvin had, is, had always been interested in the uh, ocean suite trial in Detroit of the African-American doctor who moved into a white neighborhood in Detroit which uh, ended in a kind of tragic situation uh, and a trial.
1: Right. That was in 1925 when he defended
0: himself against a white mob. Right. I know that uh, Talvin was interested in doing a show about that even before we talked about the Trayvon Project. And I know that we wanted to have a, a female subject in the show as well, and he took the lead to find the Fannie Lou Hamer scene in the show. And also the um, ropes, and we were both interested—I mean, I was already interested in ropes, and, and uh, Talvin was too, of course. And then so when he found that, we also felt that that should go in as well, because we were interested in also not only about race, but about citizenship,
1: and that was Paul Robeson's testimony in front of the House on Un-American Activities Committee.
0: Exactly. The show was really as much about citizenship and about the promise of the Constitution and the promise of what this nation says it is and what it isn't for so many people in this country. What it means to be a citizen. Exactly. And so I in my research during the course of this show I was reading a lot of James Baldwin's essays. And I decided to look up interviews he did on YouTube, and I found the, the interview that we wound up using in the show, which, which I knew was the climax of the show. I knew that the show should end with this scene of him speaking in London. So that's how those sections were chosen. And ending with that James Baldwin speech, that
1: speech seemed to sum up everything that was discussed in that play. It was amazing.
0: The whole idea was that everything that happened before it converges in that one vessel that's the James Baldwin speech.
2: Well, if the day comes when you realize that you cannot make yourself heard, that the people you are addressing are pleading for them and for you, and the plea is a very simple one. They're saying, look at it.
0: Look at all the mountains
2: of nonsense that have been written and everything that has been said. They get the Negro problem. Don't mind any voting acts we have that's called the 15th Amendment. Don't look at the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. What you have to look at is what is really happening in this country. And what is really happening in this country is that brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers, it is not a racial problem. It is a problem of whether you are willing to look at your life and be responsible for it, and then begin to change it. That great Western house I come from is one house, and I am one of the children of that house. Simply, I am the most despised child of that house. It is because the American people are unable to face the fact that I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My
1: blood and my father's blood is in that soil. They cannot face that. And Moriyama Akibu performed James Baldwin's
0: speech. She was remarkable. She's great. I mean, oh. I think she must be like, I think she's only about 20, you know? She was amazing. But, you know, I started working with her, and she sped through it like she was driving a race car when I first worked with her. And I said, people need to hear what you're saying. And you need to use the silences to give it weight. And she came through.
1: Yeah, she sure did. She was great. You also have fictional scenes interspersed with these historical ones. And one is like a three-act mini-play set during the Depression. And then there's also a scene set in the antebellum South that is Repeated well, partially repeated, almost exactly.
0: Only the beginning of it was uh, was repeated exactly. The scenes are actually different within them. It was. But a then very it beginning. ends exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a, a theme and variation. Right. Much better put. Yeah. Tell me how you derive these two. Well, the the Civil War section was something that I had, as I said, started as as a show about the Civil War, and when I began that project, I was interested in how the South was seeing the world at that time and how the South justified their peculiar institution, as they put it, or that recent unpleasantness, <laughs> as they put it also, you know. And the other section was inspired by um, a play by Richard Wright. So it's kind of a riff on that.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. That's yeah. pretty it, It's pretty in a very late collection
0: of short writings of his called Eight Men which I think is a wonderful collection and very daring in in many ways. The actors were all students. Absolutely, all undergrads. <laughs> they were extraordinary. The thing was it was an extremely challenging project for them and I turned it I said to Talvin many times I said we're asking these kids to do a very challenging show in every way in terms of the subject matter in terms of the demands on them to carry such lengthy, in some cases, some very lengthy material on stage, single-handedly almost. And they rose to the challenge. And uh, that was one of the most satisfying things about it. I'm curious what the audition process was like for this. Well, because I had written the Civil War scenes already, I brought some of those, some of which didn't end up in the show even. The Robeson we already had excerpted from the actual HUAC interrogations. So we had a couple of things that we could bring that was close to what we had in mind. We also did something very unusual for an audition, which is that I, in fact, met the three grad designers before I did the audition. So when we actually did the audition, the grad designers had already come up with the set design and the costume designs. Very unusual. And we Mm. actually presented that to the kids who came in for the audition, so they knew where we were going with this material. You've been in the theater for a very long time. When did you first begin in theater?
1: Um, 1972. 1972. And did you come to the theater as an actor,
0: a director, a playwright, a dancer? Actually, I would say in 1972, I was part of the New York avant-garde. I was a member of Meredith Monk's company. Aha. So I actually started in dance, although my background was in film and visual arts. Your work pretty much operates
1: at the intersection of social responsibility and innovation. Would you say that's
0: fair? That's more than fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say um, I'm an interdisciplinary artist, which is really the truth. Yes. Yes. I
1: I think that is true, too. Yeah. Because I saw your six grants from the NEA in four different
0: genres. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, in fact, right now, I'm actually doing an anniversary print for the, the List Visual Arts Center in, for MIT, which I did my first art installation. And I've uh, been approached to create a commissioned dance work for 2016. So, yeah, I continue to be interdisciplinary.
1: Was your motivation to to become an artist, I know this might be a very reductive question, mm-hmm. but I'm curious if you were driven by creativity or driven by social justice. And I know that's really reductive, but what I mean was, were you inflamed by a passion for social justice and you saw the arts as a wonderful vehicle for that? Or were you an artist who was also inflamed by social justice?
0: Um. You know, I've pretty much been a single-mindedly artistic person. I came from two generations before me in the theater. My grandfather and my father were Chinese opera directors and librettists, and my mother was a diva, and my father's best friend was a scenic drop painter. So I started out in life going to an art high school and then went to Pratt Institute in New York to study painting and and fine arts, and then went to the School of Visual Arts, and after that studied with Meredith Monk. So I'm a combination of all these forces that has created the kind of artist I am today. As far as which came first, I would say that my love of creativity came first, but the social justice aspect came very early in my life, you know, as a young boy, I was aware of injustice. I didn't know that the work would move in that direction, of course, and not all my work is about that. But because of the world we live in today, I feel that as an artist, it's important, and, and as a citizen, it's important as an artist citizen to do my part to try to keep people more aware and more conscious of their responsibility to a just world. I think that's probably the best way to put it. So in my small way, in my little way as a theater artist, I want to do what I can to make people responsible. And making Kaleidoscope, is for me, is one of those attempts to tell this country that we can't ignore this history because even the fictional sections of that show are based on fact.
1: I'd like to have you discuss, because I'm very curious about Kaleidoscope's Mm -hmm. relation to Undesirable Elements, that massive multi-year project. But if you could just please first explain briefly what Undesirable
0: Elements is. The Undesirable Elements series began as a project of giving voice to communities in this country that are not heard as much in the mainstream media to create a space for them to talk about what it is culturally to be other in America, what are the gains and losses and what happens to their identity. Being other meaning that they are hyphenated Americans as all people of color in this country are. And being a hyphenated American in some sense is a subtle way of not acknowledging that we are full Americans.
1: well, how does how does this play out on the stage? What happens?
0: Undesirable Elements uh, is a series of oral history or storytelling theater works with real people. They are not actors. and each of them I have interviewed for over two to three to four hours each. And I transcribe their narratives to script. And and they're usually about six or seven people on stage with a microphone and a music stand with their script in front of them, like a score. It functions like a score. And Mm -hmm. so in this show, the Undesirable Elements series, which there have been over 55 incarnations of nationally and internationally, it's always been about the question of what is it to be different And what is it to give up your cultural identity or negotiate your cultural identity when you come from somewhere else? So there's overlap between what Kaleidoscope is and what Undesirable Elements is, is that in that African Americans in this country have always been forced to be other.
1: How does the audience respond to this?
0: I think of Undesirable Elements as a communion. When the audience comes into the theater, they see six or seven people on stage, and they read them in whatever way they read them. Visually, meaning Mm. they might have stereotypes about them. They might not know who they are. You know, we all judge each other by first appearances. And this was a show where when you first see these people, you don't know who they are. You don't know uh, that you have anything in common with them. But by the end of the show, the differences of these people— results actually, ironically, in the sense of communion with the audience, in the sense that we are all human beings, and we may have all these differences, but we all go through the same fundamental experiences of being human. And that was the function of undesirable elements. That difference is actually not a negative, but a plus.
1: And don't you find that true, for example, in literature? It's almost as though the more specific... Mm -hmm. A writer is, the more universal the story becomes. Right.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: I know you have a company, Ping Zhang and Company. Do members of that company come together to work on the series Undesirable Elements?
0: Well, with the Undesirable Elements series, they're teaching artists to do that in public schools, but also teach workshops. And then there are people, co-collaborators who make their own productions of Undesirable Elements. For example, Sarah Zatz, who's a key member of my company, directs her own productions of Undesirable Elements and co-directs Undesirable Elements. Right now, we are planning an all-Muslim cast in New York City about what it is to be Muslim in New York City, but it's also about what it is to be Muslim at this moment in this nation, which isn't such a comfortable place. Place to be, yeah. But, but, But for us, it's about making people understand that the media blows everything out of proportion, 99% 99% of Muslim people are just people like everybody else, but that the media blows up the, the fact that they're they're these terrorists, but they're, they're a very tiny percentage of what Muslims are. Most Muslims are, are law-abiding citizens, you know, and they just want to get by in life like the rest of us, you know. If we were to judge the KKK as all Christians, it gives you some the same idea, you know, but people don't seem to see that. And I have to blame the media.
1: It's that. And I also think we're in an age of media where you can pretty much pick the media that speaks to your beliefs, which obviously is so limiting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why when I'm in a situation like the University of Maryland at College Park, whenever I'm asked to come and work with young people, I try to – Not only teach them the art of theater, but also something about citizenship and also something about the unofficial history. Because we all know that every country writes an official history, which is very different than the actual history. Every country. People need to know that African Americans have had a very raw deal all along and continue to have a raw deal today. And it's less
1: that there have been so many conversations about race. I think there have been so many
0: conversations around race. At least right now, there seems to be some willingness to talk, even if some people were saying, oh, we don't want to hear about this anymore. But it's there. It's happening. Because undeniably, the Trayvon Martin thing last year, the uh, Jordan Davis getting killed and, and the Michael Brown situation is provoking conversation. And Michael Brown might have been a foolish teenager, which he probably was in, you know, in this situation, you know, but he's a teenager. Teenagers do silly, stupid things. That's what teenagers do, you know. And he didn't deserve to die.
1: Making a living as an artist is always very difficult. Making a living when you're an innovator out of the avant-garde who deals with work of social justice,
0: a lot harder. Definitely. But I've managed to survive without being commercial. It's not easy. No, it's not. It's not easy, but I've managed. Artists are totally other in this country. I think part of my sympathy, my empathy comes from that, certainly. Certainly comes from being an immigrant. Certainly from being a person of color. You know, I mean, there's two... Things that are so essential to a better world. One is empathy. The other is that we learn not to be in denial of the things that aren't right. But denial is actually something nobody talks much about. But denial is one of the real shadows in human existence. It's the our incredible ability to to be in denial. The race situation is certainly that.
1: It's interesting because I think the arts offer. Certainly towards empathy. It's very hard to see a piece of theater or be moved by a book without it targeting your empathy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what it's about. And the arts also have the capacity, in fact, to shine
0: a light on things that people are denying. That is the role of the artist, is to shine a mirror. We're like the outsiders who can look at the situation in a more cooler light and is able to look at it dispassionately, you know?
1: I mentioned you've gotten many awards, including six fellowships from the NEA in four different genres. I know they've occurred over the course of your career, but as a producer for the NEA, I'm very curious about what those awards meant for you.
0: Well, they they meant I could keep going. <laughs> they meant that I could keep doing what I love. I feel very privileged to have been able to work as an artist for 45 years, 45-plus 45 years. A photographer friend of mine said to me, she came to see Kaleidoscope, and she said, it must be hard to leave at the end of a show. You know, all those people that you've been a team part of— And I said, that's the beauty and the sadness of being in the theater is that you have this incredible bond with people and you're all pushing this rock up a hill and then you get it up there and then you have to leave, Mm. you know, and over and over again. It's kind of like Sisyphus or something, you know. But that's also the beauty of it. And now it's also metaphorical of our lives. We we always lose the people around us sooner or later. You know, that's just the way it is. And that's how it is being in the theater. But my experience with those kids at um, Maryland and the designers was it was incredibly uh, harmonious. It was difficult for the kids, definitely difficult. But they really, really rose to the challenge, and they were beautiful. I just loved them. You know, they were just wonderful kids. Many of them spoke up about their experience working on Kaleidoscope, you know, and, and that was, uh, that's why I, I, I like doing this with kids because for them, they learned something beyond the craft. You know, they learned something about the world they lived in. Not that it's pleasant always, but at least they learn more. Well, Ping, what is next for Kaleidoscope? Well, we, we certainly hope to take it to another level. Talvin ran off the next day. He was there Sunday for the understudies run, and then he took off for Texas to work with urban bushwomen. He just kept going. Fortunately for me, I got to come home, and uh, we plan to get back together and debrief on Kaleidoscope and keep working on it. From my point of view, the the show is a great first shot at it, but I think we still want to do a little more work on it. We're confident that we will do it elsewhere, both professionally and in a university setting. As I said, for me, it's a project that has both a professional future and a pedagogical one, because to me, the information is really important.
1: It was a great show. I was really blown away by it. Thank you. Ping Jong, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you. That was multidisciplinary artist Ping Zhang. He co-wrote and co-directed Kaleidoscope with collaborator Talvin Wilkes. We heard Moriyamo Akibu perform an excerpt of James Baldwin's speech at the West Indian Student Center in London. She's a senior at the University of Maryland. You've been listening to Artworks produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.